What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello, uh, I'm John Fugelsang. This is Tell Me Everything on Sirius XM Progress, where we take on fraud, fascism, fear, and fools. This is the muckraking, risk-taking, rule-breaking, claim-staking, mischief-making, hip-shaking, wake-and-baking monster of a show. We call Tell Me Everything. This show is open to everybody of every age and render, gender and creed and identifier. We're open to liberals and progressives and Democrats and moderates and sane conservatives. They're still out there and fans of sanity, decency, fans of being anti-evil. And uh, we're here for the fascists who think they're still conservatives, the fake patriots, the trickle downers, the Christians in name only, and the racists who think they can't be racist because they once sat through a Kevin Hart movie on an airplane. You're all welcome. We will be friendly, but we will not bullshit you here on Sirius XM Progress, where we bring good trouble to the right wing bubble. Chris Hauselt is our uh, executive producer from the South Carolina Bureau. Thea Harper running this thing from the Brooklyn studios. I'm John Fugel saying somehow. Hoodies replaced cardigans, and none of us noticed it. Tonight on the show, uh, Rachel Miner of Bellwether International on how to prevent genocide. But first, I got asked this weird question. I was asked what I was grateful for politically in 2022. And, and I, I, I was surprised by the answer. I blurted out. I, I was doing this show, uh, our friend Nagin Farsad's podcast, Fake the Nation. It's really smart. And, and this was the question she asked. What are you grateful for? culturally, personally, and politically. And I was like, oh, well, culturally, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, there's so much good art this year. Bruce Springsteen covered the Commodores and, and you know, I, I reread Heather McGee's The Sum of Us and, and everything everywhere all at once. A lot of great stuff, culture. And personally, my God, I, we can travel again. Got to go back to D.C. and L.A. and Chicago this year. I got to take my kid to his first concert. It was Paul McCartney. A lot to be thankful for culturally, but politically, you know, I had to say something right in the moment. And I could have said something like, well, I'm grateful America's fascists are always more dumb than they are evil. Because that's true. The stupid is always worse than the sinister with our fascists. I, I call them, you know, dim shady. Nixon, Bush, Trump, DeSantis, they're all evil. But they're also incompetent. They all tend to screw up epically. I, I could have said, you know, I'm grateful that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Jim Jordan were reelected because they deserve to be the faces of this current version of the Republican Party. That would have been clever. It would have been kind of cynical, but it's true. But instead, I, I blurted out something I never thought I'd say. She said, what are you grateful for politically in 2022? And I said, I'm grateful for old Joe Biden. Yeah, 
Old Joe. Now, I, I don't say this to be ageist. It's quite the opposite. I, I hate ageism. Ageism is the one ism that both conservatives and progressives are, are prone to. We've, we've seen ageism from the left. I mean, my God. People I love were really mean to McCain and Bob Dole and 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 Strom Thurmond and except Strom Thurmond deserved all of it. But like you know, I I am not into ageism. I have defended Joe Biden against ageism a lot, so much. I need a nap. I fight ageism so much. I'm going to break a hip, folks. Let me tell you. I tell ages get off my lawn. I'm cold. You know, I I didn't think no malarkey was the greatest hook. For Gen Z voters, that's just me. I thought Biden could have gone with something a bit more contemporary, like no poppycock. But they've all gone after him. Oh, they hate him. Oh, my God. They they hate this guy. They hate him like he's Obama's tan suit. And again, they, they have a hard time hating him because he's an old white guy. And that's tougher to sell for hate. At most Republican events, you, you Google this. Anti-Obama and anti-Hillary merchandise still sells out anti-Biden merchandise. I don't know what that says, but but here's the thing. They, they're going to mock him no matter what he does. They're going to lie about him no matter what he does. They're going to assume people really give it. Oh, they're betting the farm on this Hunter Biden laptop, and there's nothing there. And it's going to be like another 400 years of Benghazi investigations just to try to keep the rage IV drip going in these white men. They have nothing to offer, conservative, hardworking men. Except Umbridge. So they'll try and keep him angry. And, and they'll mock Biden anytime. Anytime the 80-year-old with a stutter stumbles, they're all over him. They mock him if he falls. They, they mocked him when he literally fell off a bike. But Biden gets up. Biden gets up every time he falls. And, and again, you think about Trump. Trump is going on Truth Social, mocking Biden's age and dementia. President Sippy Cup afraid of ramps. Can you imagine Donald Trump trying to ride a bike? Trump tried jumping on a bike once in 2017, and the bike was never seen again. It hasn't been recovered. They've sent those Chilean mining crews in to try to... It, it's all... Trump came out and bragged he passed a dementia test, which only tells us the people around you made you take a dementia test. Now, I, I'm surprised to say it, but old Joe Biden is my favorite Joe Biden of all the Joe Bidens I grew up with in the American political multiverse. I mean, when I was a kid... I wasn't a particular big fan of Senator Joe Biden, but I, I, I really liked anti-apartheid Joe Biden. Have you ever watched the footage on YouTube of Joe Biden tearing into Secretary of State Schultz over the Reagan administration defending apartheid? It's incredible. I got older. I wasn't a fan of voting for the Iraq war Senator Joe Biden, but I was a huge fan of Vice President Joe Biden being the first national politician in American history to come out for marriage equality. And he did it in the heat of a tough re-election battle. And look, I wasn't a fan of former VP Biden when he was a candidate. He wasn't my first choice. He wasn't my second choice. I, I, I always figured he'd win. I predicted in 2017 on this show that he would be the de facto nominee and that Kamala Harris would be his running mate and that they would defeat Trump and then he would spend four years as a powerless and helpless punching bag. That's what I predicted. And you know what? <laughs> Three out of four, I got right. I mean, as someone raised Catholic, I'm given to dread, so I'm usually relieved to be wrong about things. Because I was wrong about the end of that. He hasn't been a powerless and helpless punching bag. I thought, oh my God, this is going to be my worst John Kerry nightmares come to life. It's just going to be this nice old guy who's going to be a pinata by these people. But whoa, folks, old Joe Biden gets shit done. I, 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 I like old Joe Biden.
I like old Joe Biden, 80 years old with a stutter, decriminalizing weed on the federal level. Decades of justice. Old Joe Biden trying to kill half the student loan debt in this country because he knows how evil the interest rates are. He knows our economy is stronger if those young people are paying banks for mortgages instead of student loans. He knows it's impossible to climb the economic ladder with 400 pounds of student loan debt around your neck. Old Joe Biden gave us the Inflation Reduction Act, which we still haven't begun to appreciate because it hasn't gone into effect. But that thing will let Medicare negotiate drug prices. It's going to reduce the price of insulin to $35 per month for seniors. It's going to cap the yearly out-of-pocket drug costs for American seniors at $2,000. Do you understand how huge this is for your grandma or your parents? The Inflation Reduction Act is going to let hearing aids be purchased over the counter. It's going to make surprise billing by doctors totally illegal. It's going to have a 15% mandatory tax on corporations. It's going to have breakthrough climate provisions. And the Inflation Reduction Act got zero Republican votes. Everything I just mentioned to you is incredibly popular. (laughs) The Infrastructure Act, $17 billion is going to be spent fixing up our ports. $550 billion will be spent repairing our nation's roads. $25 billion to modernize the airports. They're going to fix the bridges and the water pipes. They're going to bring broadband to rural communities. It's going to create one and a half million jobs over the next 10 years. This very popular infrastructure law that will change our economy and help future generations was opposed by 206 House Republicans and 30 Republican senators. But the 79-year-old guy with a stutter, he made it happen. And most Americans think Biden hasn't done much. You read these surveys and, and polls, and of course, we're not supposed to believe polls anymore after 2022, right? But, you know, the reason people think that is because these are very delayed benefits in all this legislation that's passed. Like, the, the, okay, the cap on the out-of-pocket drug costs in the Inflation Reduction Act, that's not even going to start till 2025. Letting Medicare negotiate with Big Pharma for lower drug prices, that's not going to start till 2025. A, a lot of the money for the infrastructure bill, that's going to be spread out over the next 10 years. But, I mean, look at the CHIPS Act. B- bringing manufacturing on an electronic level to this country is huge. Uh, the, the PACT Act for our wounded veterans, the first major gun safety legislation in like decades, historic job growth. I mean, his first year was the best job growth for any president ever in one year. Like, like you know, they took out the leader of Al-Qaeda. I, I admit being Al-Qaeda leader is sort of like, you know, the terrorist version of being the drummer in Spinal Tap, but still, you know, historically low unemployment. Uh, the, the fastest jobs recovery in history, uh, getting Katanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court. I haven't loved everything. He chaotically pulled us out of Afghanistan. I thought that could have been done better. Of course, he was trying to end the process Trump began. Trump said he didn't want Biden taking credit for the Afghan withdrawal. And, and, and Biden did it. And it was ugly. And everyone on the left hated him. Everyone on the right hated him. But he did it all while trying to bring our country out of this Two and a half year pandemic. Joe Joe Biden got Brittany Griner back from Russia. He literally got mainstream media to cover a trade for a WNBA player. We had the lowest child poverty rate in the history of this country last year, which proves that government can do that when government cares and wants to do that. Joe Biden has led this insanely historic world solidarity movement against Vladimir Putin's incompetent, murderous aggression on civilians in Ukraine. Joe Biden just signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law. <laughs> so now if the Supreme Court tries to take away marriage equality like they took away Roe v. Wade, well, it'll be codified on the federal level. And Joe Biden did all this, man, 
with the most razor thin margins you can imagine. Dude, old Joe Biden gets shit done. He gets a lot done in a day. Joe Biden's like a lesbian Scientologist. This this man is productive. Can we can we run a hundred year old guy and see what the hundred year old guy can do? Holy crap. If Joe Biden left right now, right now, he would be the most consequential one term president in history, (laughs) the most consequential partial term president in history. And, you know, he's never going to get thanks for it until it's way too late. In that sense, yeah, it's fair to compare him to Jimmy Carter. Joe Biden said Vladimir Putin should be removed. And he was right. And nobody defended him. You know what that's like? We went from a, a, having a president who never got in trouble for lying to having a president who gets in trouble for telling the truth. And when Kentucky was hit by deadly floods a year ago, Rand Paul went running to Joe Biden for federal disaster assistance faster than Ayn Rand would run to her mailbox for them Social Security checks. And then there's just, you know, the the stuff that I admire that he's tried to do, the stuff he's failed to do, raising the minimum wage, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act and, and the railway workers. You know what? That sucked. See, we're not a cult. We'll criticize Joe Biden. I, I have no problem criticizing Joe Biden when he's wrong. And I have no problem criticizing him over what happened for the railway workers because it sucked. He bragged about being pro-union. He's been pro-union his whole life, and he tried to have a quick fix before the holidays. But I will also say, I think he cares. I think Joe Biden is going to try to fix it so they can have their seven days of paid sick leave. I think he's got empathy for the situation. I think he wants to do it. I think he will do it because he cares. And I think he'll get no credit when he finally does. You know, and then there's the stuff Biden doesn't do. He doesn't lie to migrants about jobs and housing to trick them onto planes. He doesn't move migrants around the U.S. without telling officials they're coming. He doesn't use COVID relief funds to ship migrants to states he dislikes. He doesn't move human pawns around to get likes from racists. Joe Biden, if he had full dementia in a coma with an alien popping out of his chest, is more honest and competent and presidential than Trump or DeSantis on their best day. Biden does what Zoloff promises to do. And and I'll tell you something. Again, it comes down to what I like the best about Joe Biden. Because there's two kinds of old people. There's two kinds of old white men. The ones who refuse to change, the ones who refuse to learn, the ones who are so set in their ways. That shitty expression. Grandpa's set in his ways. What that is is a way of saying, well, Grandpa's lived 85 years and he witnessed the civil rights struggle and the women's struggle for equality and equal rights and he witnessed the LGBT struggles and Grandpa learned absolutely nothing and didn't grow at all. That's what set in his ways means. That's Trumpism. What I like best about Joe Biden is that it's no mystery. He's got a lot of positions in his past that kept people like me from supporting him for a very long time. He's got a lot of positions in his past that kept people like me from making him our first or second choice for president in 2020. But he's shown something very important. And and I mean this from the heart at Christmas time. Sometimes old white men can learn And they can grow. Sometimes old white men can evolve with the times. You know, think about Eisenhower. I mean, Eisenhower had this real perception that he was just uh, completely detached and old and uh, a previous previous era. He, He had no idea what was going on in the world and the world was changing. But look at the kind of Republican he was. He created the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, which is now Health and Human Services. He expanded Social Security. He increased the federal minimum wage. He got passage of the Federal Highway Act, the largest infrastructure investment 
well, until Joe Biden came along. Eisenhower improved the National Defense Education Act. He declared federal government must take the lead in making certain the productivity of our great economic machine is distributed so that no one will suffer disaster, privation through no fault of his own. Uh, Eisenhower was a lot better than liberals gave him credit for. Eisenhower was a raging liberal compared to some of today's Democrats. I think Joe Biden's going to be remembered in such a way as well. Again, never forgetting his flaws, never forgetting the things he did we wish he hadn't done. But again, sometimes the old white guys can grow and get better. And that's encouraging to me. I think Joe Biden will probably go down as one of our more compassionate presidents. I think Trump will probably go down on Vladimir Putin. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In the last 10 years, there have been three genocides announced around the world, and all three have been related to the freedom of religion, which increasingly can be a matter of life or death. Which brings me to my next guest. In 2019, after working with the Yazidis, a religious minority in the Middle East displaced by the ISIS-perpetrated genocide, an undergraduate at Brigham Young University, Rachel Miner, saw the humanitarian gap for religious minority groups in real time. Religious minority groups that have suffered genocide, especially in communities where freedom of religion or belief is violated or ignored or just blown off. Rachel founded Bellwether International in London to respond to pre and post genocide communities who've experienced severe violations of freedom of religion or belief. Bellwether's a nonprofit which is geared towards protecting global religious freedom. The organization operates in four main spheres, education, aid to refugees, gender equality, and advocacy. It's a very inspiring story about how anyone can make a difference. Bellwether right now is working with Ukraine, Iraq, Nigeria, and with the UK Parliament to build genocide resistant societies through freedom of religion or belief. And full disclosure, I was recently speaking in London at an event Ms. Minor organized at the House of Parliament, and I told her when she was back in the USA, I wanted to get her on Sirius XM. You got here yesterday? Yes, blew in yesterday. Rachel Minor, welcome to Sirius XM and the United States. Thank you so much for hosting me, John. And thank you for that very kind introduction. I want to first underscore something that you mentioned that's critical to our work, and that is the or. Too often... Today, we live by and mm -hmm. and not or. And there's a lot of great commentary on that. Lots of books to recommend uh, to deepen the learning. But freedom of religion or belief underscores the fact that we're fundamentally protecting human dignity and not religion. Religion would be quite a difficult thing 
to protect, but we're protecting people who bring beliefs into the public square, whether they're religious or non-religious, both have a place in democratic societies and pluralistic societies. And that's a, a view of the world that we want to share with everyone all over the world, regardless of background. And we want to do it in a way where we're not imposing any kind of belief on anyone, but really allowing people to bring their whole selves and their conscience to their work, to their families, to the community, to their synagogues, to their mosques, wherever it may be, we should all be able to bring our whole selves, our whole identities, and not feel that we have to deconstruct that in order to appease certain cultural norms. I find in going through your work a lot, I find this expression FORB, the F-O-R-B, and that is freedom of religion or belief. And it, it's a very important distinction to make because your organization, of course, you know, is all there for the atheists and the agnostics and the spiritual people who don't have necessarily a, a religious home. They can all still be victimized in the same ways. That's correct. Uh, along belief lines, and that's what I want to talk more about today. But I think, again, going back to that or, something that it demands or demands that we actually stand together in tension sometimes with beliefs that are very different than our own. And so we're not promoting a view of the world where a single religion dominates politics or the state, or in fact, that can lead to really harmful human rights abuses as we've seen. But we're, we're promoting an or view of the world, which is that you believe differently than me, and I'm going to protect your human rights knowing that when mine come under threat, you'll be there to stand with me. And you'll be there to protect those same beliefs. And and that's that's a hard thing to model, especially when we live in our silos and our tribes. But the more that we can help people to see, if you protect, just as we've seen with the LGBTQ plus movement, when we protect people for their sexual orientation, we should also be able to protect people for their religion yeah. and acknowledge the intersectionality, right? NBC had a study that showed actually 47% of the LGBTQ plus community identifies as religious. Mm -hmm. So we need to acknowledge that all of these identities come together and make us human. I mean, intersectionality is one of those words that I think um, gets debated so much. We lose sight of how vital it is to understanding this species. And, you know, your work is all about the intersection of of human rights which means a lot of different threads all at once. I mean, human rights doesn't simply mean, you know, one group. I mean, your work is all about lifting women, lifting children, the abused, the oppressed. I'm curious, when we talk about pre- and post-genocidal communities, what do you mean by that language? There are a couple of components to take into account. First, the Convention on Genocide, which was outlined by the United Nations, which has a couple of key indicators which suggest that a country is backsliding towards genocide. The problem with those core indicators is that by the time they're acknowledged, it's too late. It's always too late by the time we've acknowledged these genocides. And we've seen that recently, particularly with the Uyghurs in China. Yeah. This is an abuse and a violence that's been carried out against a people for many, many, many years. And so to acknowledge and, and trigger those sanctions, which are important in that designation, which mandates that nations act and respond, that's very important. But pre-genocide is as important as the designation itself, if not more important, because what we're doing when we first see those indicators 
of hate speech or scapegoating or a religious minority being targeted, that's when we actually have a duty to prevent genocide. And that duty to prevent is a a large discussion in the legal realm right now and different international human rights bodies as they try and figure out what is our duty to prevent. But I think at a very human level, at a very community level, the micro and macro level at the same time, so to speak, we all have a duty to prevent genocide. And we all have a duty to be watching for those pre-genocide indicators in our spheres of influence and then tackling them head on when we see them. You know, it's so inspiring to me to see how the entire world has formed a block of solidarity against the Soviet incursion, uh, the Soviet invasion, uh, the attempted genocide and colonization of Ukraine. I mean, it's incredible. I wish the world had stood up against America when we went into Iraq in the same way. And yet it seems that that's more because of the NATO organization and alliance coming together, as opposed to something like Myanmar, where we're all reading the stories for months and months and months. And yet it just sort of seems like I think a lot of people are stuck in a belief that genocide is a 20th century phenomena that doesn't still exist. And it almost seems like the science can be there. And yet the world community can just think, well, it can't be that bad. And next thing we know, it's genocide in progress. Yeah, let's talk about both of those circumstances. So Ukraine, when we talk about pre-genocide, I think, I mean, the world was absolutely astonished by uh, Putin's draconian uh, invasion of Ukraine and, and what's that's cost the entire region and, and there's people hurting on all sides that we have to consider with sensitivity. But what were the early indicators? And I think we missed some of them. I mean, Crimea, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Georgia. I mean, he's been working towards this for a while. There are lots of these kinds of indicators that we need to prevent, that we need to respond to. And so I think this is a, this is a tricky situation where the whole world is watching and so many people have suffered on on both sides and it's so tragic to see that but uh truly the largest conflict since world war ii on the european continent and we need to reevaluate what are we doing pre-genocide what are we doing pre-conflict and where have we become politically apathetic to some of these everyday building and genocide resistant kind of initiatives we need to be taking on a daily basis because just like the earth uh, can slide quickly into a, a state of disarray and chaos, which we've seen with climate change, if we're not actively taking steps to prevent genocide, to protect pluralism, to protect democracy, that same backsliding will occur. And we we can stop it. We can do something. But of course, the political rhetoric is that it's always too late and this is bigger than you and there's nothing you can do. But we can. We can do something. It starts by acknowledging what's in our sphere of influence and then acknowledging that it takes a consistent daily effort to confront this. And so let's let's talk about Myanmar. Who had the duty to prevent in Myanmar? A lot of people would say Facebook had a duty to prevent. They had clear indicators of hate speech. They had clear indicators of organization on social media that was inciting violence against a specific group, a religious group. And they had a duty to prevent and they didn't. Um, But who's on Facebook? I think that's an equally important question. How many billions of users are there who are scrolling past this material? We have a duty to report, to confront, and and to do it in a humane way. It's very easy to spiral into the bot world and respond to vitriol with vitriol. It's much harder to pick up a phone and call someone you've seen posted hate speech and say, hey, can we talk about this? Can we bring the human factor 
back into something I know you've said, but I'm not understanding because I know you. I know your intentions and I just want to confront this. Can we talk about this as friends? When, how often does that happen? And if it were to happen more, how many of these conflicts would we be able to prevent both in the political space, but also in the freedom of religion or belief space? I mean, this opens up so many questions for me. And it chiefly, you know, when my own government here in the States chooses to intervene in human rights or or, or, or genocide disasters uh, when there's not valuable natural resources. I always thought if they'd found oil in Rwanda, the whole story would have turned out very differently. In the case of Myanmar, though, it almost seems like the entire world was a bit gaslit because the unexpected villain was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, a hero of U2 concerts, someone that I grew up admiring very deeply, who somehow went from being a Lequilessa Nelson Mandela story to then being a perpetrator and an architect of the exact thing she was acclaimed for resisting. And I think in many ways, it, it took the whole world a couple of extra years to get hip to it. Yeah. And there's a real tendency in genocide to, I mean, we have to balance two interests. The first is to hold perpetrators accountable. Anyone who's abusing human rights, who's abusing women. I mean, the stories of sexual violence that come out of the Myanmar genocide are so sickening, so horrific. And we, we must stand against that for all women everywhere and prevent sexual violence related conflict. But I think one thing we need to be mindful of in this fight for genocide resistant societies is, is avoiding too much a heavy hand on the name, blame and shame game. Because what that leads to is a kind of apathy where we point fingers, we say it's a single person's fault, and yeah, then we, we wash our hands clean of it and say, oh, now that we've identified where the problem has started, there's nothing more we can do. I, we see this a bit in Russia. Well, Putin's behind this. There's right. nothing more we can do. So we need to find a balance of holding those perpetrators accountable, but then also acknowledging what is still in our control. Where do we still have stewardship over the human family and who needs our support? right now? Where can we give that? And I think if you find the right balance, then we're able to navigate these very, very complex, difficult situations and save lives. That's what it's about. It's about saving lives. One component of genocide, as you mentioned, is is always sexual violence. And a lot of your work can be summed up in the stories of three different women that I'd like to ask you about, um, starting with uh, Masamini and um, these are names that Americans may have heard of, but uh, most likely are not household fixtures on our news, like important people like Kardashians. Let's talk about these three women, because I, I think that they do sum up um, why Bellwether exists. Absolutely. Uh, Masa Amini, a woman who completely changed the world and at such dear a cost. I don't ever want to simplify the value of a human life and... I want to honor the life that Masa Amini lived, but also the life that she lost. can honor both at the same time. For those who don't know, what is her story? Yeah, Masa Amini is a Kurdish woman living in Iran who did not wear the hijab to the Iranian regime standard. And she was policed by a group of people enforced with upholding the moral standards of the country. And she was brutally beaten to death in a moment that completely shocked the world. And it's a convergence of a lot of things, obviously the suppression of people in Iran and the oppression of women there. 
but also it's a story about freedom of religion or belief. Or freedom from religion or belief. Precisely. And that word encapsulates those two components as we've talked about. Or. Her freedom, exactly. It's the or factor. Her freedom looked like wearing the hijab as she pleases, not as dictated by any regime, not as dictated by any institutional body. That's a critical component of what religion means. And I think she's opened up a space for us to obviously talk about the atrocities of of women around the world, but also to talk about what does it look like to be a religious person, but not in the normal uh, constructed ways that we think of religious institutions. And can we create space for that? And so I think Masa Amini really teaches us a couple of core takeaways. The first is that women are at the heart of most genocidal actions, the heart of most human rights abuses. And we need to give place for women to be women. We don't want to brand them constantly as the victim of the story, which is why I really wanted to honor her life and take a moment to honor her life, but also acknowledge that they're disproportionately targeted. And when there is a component of religion or race or ethnic identity or sexual orientation, this creates double jeopardy, as feminist theory says, yeah. for women all over the world. But that's what makes this protest stand out to me, because we've seen student uprisings in Iran since, you know, the fundamentalist religious takeover 40 odd years ago. We've seen them come close many times. This is a country with a population where over 50 percent of the population is underage, 40. Like this country is going to change. And these arch conservative old ayatollahs are not going to be able to maintain this at all. But even after her murder, to see how the movement continues to expand and grow and that this story is nowhere near done yet. And I look at how they're now beginning to have the death sentences and it's still a religious freedom story and it's a freedom of speech story. And it's again, it's it's the authoritarian fundamentalist religious approach that is victimizing a whole different subset of religious people. Precisely. And it's a story about freedom of choice. Women choose to wear hijab and we honor that. Women choose not to wear hijab and we honor that. And that tension is difficult. And because of secular trends and because we can acknowledge that many horrific things have happened in the name of religion, but just because religion claims to have a monopoly of of good doesn't mean that they also have a monopoly of evil. It's true. And to presume that all evil things are done in the name of religion severely marginalize women of faith who choose to wear hijab, who choose to worship. And so I think that that's a critical component of this story. And we've seen really powerful women all over the world share their thoughts on this. Malala comes to mind. She shared a beautiful video talking about why she wears hijab and what it means to her. And I I think Masa Amini would stand next to Malala and support that choice. And so we honor Masa Amini by honoring women's choice, their choice to believe and their choice to believe in ways that may go against trends in whatever country it may be in, whatever the standards may be, whether it's a religious state or a secular state, we have to honor that space for women to truly protect human rights. It's just so incredible to see a woman-led revolution in Iran. I, I never thought I'd see it. And I think that these societies in the 21st century should get very used to this kind of pushback. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better. David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back. I want to ask you to talk about Deborah Emanuel a bit. Yeah, Masa Amini for me points to many women around the world, some who don't have the same platform and the same power of a hashtag and the same incredible revolutionaries out in the front with their phones. I mean, this is it's unbelievable to be a, a witness to the revolution in Iran. But there are millions of Masa Aminis and Deborah Emanuel is a type of Masa. She's a young woman who's the same age as Masa Amini, who was going to university in northern Nigeria and finished an exam and put in her WhatsApp group, Praise to Jesus, immediately after which her peers confronted her and said, you're blaspheming. She said, no, I'm practicing my faith. Well, she was then brutally dragged from the classroom and stoned to death and then burned alive. This is a story contemporary to Masa Amini's just from a different perpetrator. So we can have freedom of belief perpetrators come from government, from terrorism, but also from the people who live next door who think that their beliefs are superior, whatever those beliefs may be. So again, freedom to choose to practice a belief, a Christian woman in Nigeria choosing to praise Jesus in a WhatsApp text. That was it. That's a, a single text. And that's something we take for granted all over the world. And and yes, there's increased scrutiny for the words religious freedom, particularly for Christians and the rise of Christian nationalism. But again, there's no monopoly on evil in this world. And we have to acknowledge that so many good things come from women who practice their faith. Absolutely. And and I, I keep that in mind all the time. I mean, you know, we've talked about the fact that my feeling is the media always needs a villain. The media's job is to get ratings. So when there are moderate or liberal Christians, Muslims, and Jews working together, getting along just fine, that's not going to get the clicks. It's always going to be the fundamentalists who get the most eyeballs. And that's why growing up in this country, religion has become an atheism factory because the only representation you see on the news are these Jerry Falwells, these hardcore right-wing people who don't actually follow the tenets of the faith they claim to follow, but they are the most powerful men. They set the narrative and the media accordingly gives them positions they haven't earned because it's all about the clicks, baby. Yeah. And it's interesting to know who gets the clicks and who who gets the coverage, but also who don't, who doesn't. And Deborah Emanuel is the example of those who don't. Yeah. 
there was no coverage in Western media sources about her death. There was some coverage in Nigeria. There was very little in Europe. And to think that this could have been an Iran kind of revolution led by a country of 200 million people, Nigeria, the growing emerging democracy of the world. And yet her story goes untold. But that's what makes me crazy again, because if she if this had happened in uh, Iran, if this had happened in Iraq, I can guarantee you there'd be American conservatives who would be screaming into megaphones about the victimization of Christians. But she was African. And so it barely makes a blip, even in a culture where oppressed Christians is a branding industry. It didn't even make a blip in our news here. Well, and she's a woman. Yeah. And that's the kind of intersectionality that we have to be mindful of. And I I want to acknowledge that the media has an impossible job of trying to cover a religious spectrum of millions of beliefs, but they're up to the task and we need to stop accepting religious illiteracy as a norm. Thank you. We know that the media is capable. They know how to gather facts and substantiate stories. They know how to get details about sexual orientation and race. And there's a heavy hand and a price to pay if they mislabel those groups. That same price is paid if we mislabel religion. And we need to take that into media discussions, editors especially encouraging religious literacy, religious sensitivity at the intersections of these other identity claims. What we do for one we can do for all. They have the skills that they need. And I know that the media can continue to help us create a picture where we understand these nuances in the same way we understand nuances about sexual orientation, about race, about what it means to be American and all the tensions that are associated with that. We can bring that same care when we talk about religious identity. And again, all of these women we're talking about are all women who were religious, who were oppressed by religious forces. And, and that brings me to another tragic story, that of the very young woman, Amul Banin Asghari in Kabul. Yeah, Amul Banin, a Hazara Muslim who was targeted explicitly for her faith by the Taliban. They bombed her school and nearly two dozen Hazara young girls died in a single day as a result of this bombing. Hazaras are a really important group that bring together a lot of the ideas we've talked about. Hazaras come from Mongol Turk heritage, and they have a distinct physical appearance, and they're incredibly intelligent and smart. They live in the central part of Afghanistan called Hazarajat, and there's been a slow burn genocide of Hazaras for nearly two decades. We're seeing that revamp with the occupation of the Taliban in the last year or so, but this has been a long, long journey for Hazaras. The genocide of the Hazara people, perhaps one of the greatest untold stories because of how many people it affects. And there's an enormous group of Hazara diaspora in the United States who served the American military, who are incredible in promoting the cause of democracy. And in a lot of ways, they feel that we've turned our backs on them. We don't even know who the Hazara are. We don't say their name. The stories of Amul Banin Asghari and many, many other Hazara women and men and children still suffering in Afghanistan, by the way, mm-hmm. who can't forget that these conflicts are ongoing just because they're not in the headlines. We we need to remember them and yeah. and do 
what we can. It's not that we expect everyone to respond on enormous government skills, but certainly you could take these opinions and views to the polls, and certainly you could hold your elected officials responsible for things that we have stewardship over. You know, there was this report from the Fund for Peace that suggested that, you know, the same two points, right? That a thriving and responsible media landscape helps religion thrive. You need to have freedom of religion for societal stability, and you need to have freedom of the press for societal stability and for freedom of religion. It just seems like in any developing or established Western state, freedom of the press and freedom of religion have to go hand in hand. I'm curious, what was it for you as an undergrad working in Iraq? Um, What was it that changed you, that made you begin this organization, that made you see these links? Well, you've highlighted the name of our organization inadvertently, which is Bellwether International. The word bellwether means to be an indicator of trends. So freedom of religion or belief being an indicator of genocidal trends. And what human right is the first to go? What is the first right to be targeted? Well, it's typically freedom of religion or belief. And what's second to that? Freedom of the press. Yeah. And so, again, we need to talk about these mutually reinforcing human rights like a weave. These threads come together. And if we take uh, either or approach, then we're in trouble. We're in trouble because these rights mutually reinforce each other. They're the baseline of free society. And then we see this, you know, total deconstruction of human dignity when those two human rights go So what inspired me was recognizing that intersectionality. That's a word we've said a lot today, but we really do need to think about the ors ands. I guess both are equally important. So when we when we think about what where is the worst part of our world? It's genocide. Where where is the worst genocide occurring in religious communities? And where do we lack the language to talk about that? And that's what inspired me to start Bellwether. We don't have a language to talk about religious genocide. Right. We don't have a language to talk about religion, which is what we've already covered. And we certainly don't have a language to bring religion into political spaces. But the consequence is genocide. I, I got to before before I let you go, I got to ask you about how America's doing, because, you know, I'm hung up on the fact that in this century, America waged a war on a smaller country that never attacked us, killing up to a million people, depending on whose estimates you read, because our leader, who the majority voted against, said God told him to do it. That happened in this country in this century. And I'm curious how you think America is doing on these indexes and scales, looking where we are now with Uh, anti-Semitism having a real moment in this country that no one could have seen coming two, three years ago. Islamophobia has been going strong here for over 20 years now. And now suddenly homophobia, which we thought was on the wane after, uh, after the gay marriage ruling in 2015 seems to be coming back in full swing as well. You know, in terms of stable democracies, what are the kind of warning signs that you see in this one? We have to acknowledge a couple of components in post-genocide communities. The first is intergenerational trauma. It is real. There's enormous body of scholarship that supports how we internalize genocide into our DNA and pass on traits 
that are triggered, literally triggered by genocidal experiences that could have happened years ago. So we have to look at the United States as a post-genocide community where there is intergenerational trauma. We have to. I mean, in terms of just the deliberate systemic ethnic cleansing of the indigenous people, which we still don't take seriously as a culture. And systemic slavery that took the lives of millions of black people. Millions. So what, what do we do with acknowledging this trauma? Well, there's two options, name, blame, and shame, which is we point fingers at people whose identity or people with a certain identity may have perpetrated these crimes. That doesn't lead to any side winning. And we can't necessarily atone for choices made thousands of years ago, in the case of the United States, hundreds of years ago. Nah, but, we, we can call them out for waving a flag, though. But, but yes. that's, that's what I'm that's what I want to bring us to is you have to come into the present moment. If you lead with intergenerational trauma, there's a deficit of trust. So where's the United States? There's a deficit of trust. And we don't know how to acknowledge intergenerational trauma to acknowledge in the present moment actually there's a lot we can do even though the perpetrators that should have been held to account and for justice are long gone we can take accountability as a nation and that requires a kind of trust that only comes from proximity and that proximity comes from communities living with people who look different than you talking to people who believe differently than you If the United States does not adopt the proximity principle, trauma will always speak louder than trust and will continue to see deepening divides along partisan lines, along regional lines, along religious, racial, and sexual orientation lines, and will continue to silo further apart as a country. We have to internalize what it means to be united. That is a word that comes with a lot of responsibility. And as the United States of America, we have a responsibility to reach across differences, to breach the divide, and to pull people into our lives who are different than us. And that's counterintuitive to social media, and that's counterintuitive to the algorithms, it's counterintuitive to a lot of the vitriol that comes from every side. Sure. But... If we can internalize what it means to be united as people, as human, let's find the human factor. Let's find what brings us together. Let's not overemphasize difference or underestimate sameness. I mean, we don't want to simplify the population as a monolith, but we also don't want to decide that we're actually too different, that we can never talk, we can never communicate, we can never be united. We can be united. So the challenge becomes... Find someone who looks differently than you and learn to love them. Learn to love them. Find someone who believes differently than you, who works in a different sector, who's from a different socioeconomic standing, and learn to love them and then learn to respect them and honor them. And if you can hold them up for their differences and what makes them unique and wonderful and grand, you will be brought together into the spirit of human dignity, the spirit of the human family. Maybe it's it maybe it's an American perspective to have an overly optimistic view of the future, but it's also what's enabled our democracy to survive as long as it has. I'm so glad I was able to catch you on your one free day in the United States. Uh, Rachel Miner, how do our listeners find out more about Bellwether and your work? 
please follow us on social media. We're trying to create a community of united human dignity, but also you can follow our work and follow our interventions through our website, bellwethernngo.org, our handle also, bellwethernngo, and stay involved with the people in your life, in your community, and carry the spirit of what it means to be a bellwether. Carry the spirit of what it means to be a model and leading by example across differences, across divides. And our interventions, one note about our interventions is that they're completely localized. There's no assumptions, Western, colonial, or otherwise, that we bring into our work. They're designed by the communities we serve. They're implemented by the communities we serve. They're measured and evaluated by the communities we serve. So if you find that you want to become involved with Bellwether, then you need to form a local community. That's the only level we work at. Find the people in your community that need the power of freedom of religion or belief, and then we'll work with you to design, implement, measure, and evaluate a locally-led and inspired intervention that makes the world a better place. Rachel Miner, thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks, John. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-4748. Hey, I don't know if you heard about this. Chris told me about this story and I didn't believe it. I had to look it up. Um, Kelly Conlin is a lawyer. She was trying to take her daughter and a bunch of kids as part of a school trip. She was like a parent chaperone to go see the Christmas Spectacular show with the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall right here in New York City, right across the street from where we work at the Howard Stern Tower. And as she was going in, she was stopped and told she would not be allowed in to see the show. The rest of the school group could come in. Her daughter saw the show. She waited outside on the sidewalk. They wouldn't let her in. And the reason is quite fascinating. The reason they wouldn't let this woman in, and this is one of those rare stories I want to believe conservatives and liberals could agree on, is because facial recognition technology spotted her in the lobby. And she works on a law firm, works for a law firm on cases, some of which oppose Radio City's owners, MSG. That's how good facial recognition software has gotten. This lady was in the lobby of Radio City Music Hall, and somehow the camera's zoned in on her face, knew that she worked for a law firm that was involved in some litigation against MSG, the parent company that owns Radio City Music Hall, and they wouldn't let her in, even though she bought tickets and paid for them. But they identified her, they zeroed in on her, 
And as she got into the lobby, the security guards came right up to her. She said it was pretty simultaneous, I think, to me going through the metal detector. I heard over the intercom or loudspeaker, I heard them say woman with long, dark hair and gray scarf. They asked her to show ID. As soon as she showed ID, they said, I believe they said our recognition picked you up. There's a sign in the lobby saying facial recognition is used as a security measure to ensure safety for guests and employees. This was a mom bringing her daughter to the show. She was no threat whatsoever, but they still kicked her out. And the reason they gave was that she was an attorney. Ms. Conlon says, I don't practice law in New York. I'm not an attorney that works on any cases against MSG, but she was kicked out and banned nonetheless, uh, along with all the attorneys who work in that firm and others. How creepy is this? How scary is this? A private company can turn her down after taking her money and not let her in to see a Christmas show because she works for a law firm that has some cases pending against the parent company? Whew. If this can't unite the right and the left into surveillance overreach, I don't know what we got. Chris, thank you for telling me this story. It is completely creepy and completely horrifying. We're at 866-997-4748. Let's get back to the world being on fire. That'll calm us all down. Hey, Jeff in Illinois, thanks for your patience on hold. Welcome. Hey, John. I just want to remind everybody about workingdogsforvets.org. Remind us. Um, Well, almost every dollar you give goes directly to help a, a team of a dog and a vet that needs help. Uh, you know, they, they, they house, they bring the vets down to their air, to their campus down in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. And I love this pay for his room, pay for his travel, pay for everything. It's all through done through donations. And of course, some of the money you donate has to go, you know, buy computers and pay electricity and stuff, but it's well above 95% of your donation goes to, goes to directly to a team. It's amazing. I love I love this organization. This organization saves lives. Their whole mission is to just provide service dogs and training to disabled veterans who need help. And they and, do it. And, yeah, and they do ahead. it at no charge to the veterans. No charge. And these are men and women who are returning to civil life, uh, civilian life, and they may have disabilities. And, and And this is giving them not just a friend. It's giving many of them independence. It's reducing suicide. It's reducing uh, uh, the killing of dogs in shelters, and it's reducing the overcrowding in animal yeah. shelters. It's an amazing. I mean, we still lose what like one vet commits suicide every hour in this country. Two point seven, twenty three a day, and eleven dogs are put down every second. Eleven dogs per second. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, one dog yeah. is put down every eleven seconds. Like, like, yeah, it's just so moral and inspiring and patriotic. And uh, I'm so glad you brought it up at Christmas time. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, You know, it'd be great if you could ever get them on the show. Oh, I would never do that. I can't stand them. But I but I like you. No, of course I would. I'd love to get them on the show. I I, I should put that on my my long list. Yeah. Going on with what you said about that is that, you know, their motto is they save lives at both ends of the leash. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I have a, I have yeah, an insane so, Pomeranian. Can I donate that? They probably wouldn't take that, would they? That's not the kind of dog well, that the dog, needs. The dogs have to be social with people and social with other dogs. Oh, okay. The insane Pomeranian does like not qualify. He's like my 14-month Labrador. He's like my 14-month <laughs> Labrador. Uh, Brilliant. No, he doesn't check those boxes yet. Okay. <laughs> Well, listen, Jeff, okay. I thank you for the call. I really appreciate it. Have a good evening. 866-997-4748. Yes, Chris? I, that was, that was my wrestling name, by the way. What was? 
the insane Pomeranian. No, I thought it was a Labrador. Uh, yeah, I, I have an insane Pomeranian. You know, I a dog that doesn't like dogs, mm, that's, that's, that's like a person that doesn't like people. I hope you have a great Christmas and a great evening. <laughs>